Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he says, he says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. In the NIV, I think he says he beats his body into submission. Isn't that kind of a harsh verse? So my body doesn't control me. I control it even when it hurts, even to the point of beating it into submission. And that's what Paul was talking about there. And that is kind of a hardcore verse talking about discipline. As much as I used to hate that verse, I also really wanted to be able to do that same thing, right? I also thought, man, I wish I could have that same kind of commitment that Paul had to being disciplined. Because I knew that discipline was a key to everything else that God had for me in my life. Jesus says that he gives us the abundant life. That's one of the things that he gives us. But then we get to experience it in increasing measure depending on how disciplined we are. It's really true. He provides it as just totally free of charge to us. He has a plan for our lives. We'll read some verses about that in a minute. But on the flip side of the coin, if I'm undisciplined and don't walk in that plan, I won't experience that plan, even though he has it for me. So the abundant life that God offers for us, a life of meaning, a life of of true joy despite circumstances, a life of impact, right? How many of you want to die and have nothing to say for your life? Probably none of you. We all want to live a meaningful life on this planet. Well, it goes back to self-discipline. He has a plan for your life, but really... You've heard this said probably, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And that's true. And if we're not disciplined in our life, we won't experience all that God has for us. So, he's given us the abundant life, but it's entrusted to us too. Luke 16.10 says that if we're faithful in little, we'll be faithful in much. He's given us opportunities to be faithful, to be disciplined in little things, and that will allow us to be faithful in the bigger things that he's planned for us. It all starts with knowing God. All this that we're talking about starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, in John 15, 5, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Obviously, we can eat and walk. He wasn't talking about that. He was talking about a life of true meaning. And a lot of people live their lives chasing after all sorts of things and get to the the day of their death, and their life really has stood for nothing. I don't want that to be the case for my life. And so Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. This all starts with a relationship with Jesus. It all goes back to accepting Him as our Lord and Savior and then living every day with Him in our life, with Him on the throne, in relationship with Him. That's where we have the foundation for everything else that God calls us. So it all starts with a relationship with Him. And I think if if you were to summarize everything that we're here on this planet for into a couple words, I know for me, it's YWAM's motto, and it's in a song that we sang last night, but it's to know God and to make Him known. And I think that is about the best way to describe it I've ever heard. It's all about knowing him and making him known. And I think for each one of us, that is a huge goal, right? I want my life to stand for something bigger than just this planet. So what if I were to go and start a Fortune 500 company? You know, when I die, who cares? I've been reading in Ecclesiastes the last week, and Solomon talks over and over and over about that. What is the point to work your whole life to get rich and then die and give it to somebody else? It's nothing but chasing after the wind. It's pointless. So I think a life of true meaning and true impact on this universe goes back to knowing Christ and making him known. Do you want your life to affect both this world and eternity? Because it can, and it will. And that's my first question to you guys today, is do you want your life to affect both this world and eternity? And it's kind of a yes or no answer. So you can just think that through in your head for a few seconds. I guess you could think about how badly you want your life to affect this world and eternity. If you said yes to that question, 2 Peter 1.3 is a great verse. That's one of my favorite verses. 
so many times I hear people, I even hear pastors that'll say, you know, if you need a special touch from God or whatever, raise your hand. And it, it all comes from this idea that I don't have what I need for what God's called me to. I have to just wait, and then sometime down the road, God's going to give it to me. And the Bible says in 2 Peter 1.3, it says, He has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. Everything. There's nothing left out. Everything you need for life. That's everything that you will ever need in this life. Everything you need for godliness. Everything you will ever need for your relationship with God. He's given it to you. He's given it to me. Now, we get to walk in those things. He gives us His Holy Spirit. It gives us the power to live the Christ-like life. And we can walk daily in all that He's already given us. We don't have to wait for it to come 20 years down the road or 10 years down the road or to think, hey, when I get out of college, I can start doing everything God wants me to do. Or when I get out of grad school or when I get out of who knows where or when I get married or when I do this or when I do that or when I retire. Right now is where it starts. He's already given you everything you need for life and godliness so we can begin to walk in that. So if you said yes to that question, do you want your life to make an impact on this world and eternity, then that is the good news for you, is that He's given you what you need to make that happen. He's given you a plan and a purpose for your life. Jeremiah 29.11 says that He's given you a good plan for your life. Plans to give you a future and a hope to prosper you, not to harm you. Now, in order to accomplish all the plans that He has for you, He's also given you everything you need. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So he's strengthening you already, and you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Colossians 1.28 talks about making God known, that second part of our purpose. Paul talks about making God known. And then in verse 29 he says, To this end I labor, or to making God known, he goes, To that end I labor, struggling with all of his energy, which works mightily in me. Anyway, so he gives you everything you need to accomplish the plan that he has for your life, and he gives you the energy to accomplish it. With that in mind, think about these questions. The first one is, what are you alive for and what would be missing if you weren't? You can keep thinking about that more throughout the talk and even this weekend. But the next question to think about is uh, list five things or think about five things that you hope will be said about you at your funeral. Those are kind of hardcore questions, but I think they're good to think through. Okay, now there are three shorter questions. And the first is, what is it going to take to motivate you towards your purpose? What's it going to take to keep you motivated towards your purpose? And what will it take to stop you from accomplishing your purpose in life? Okay, now, as you think about those questions, if you didn't have a whole lot to say, don't worry. I don't want that to feel condemning or condescending. I just think it's good for each of us to think through, why in the world am I on this planet? See, the Bible says you are on this planet uniquely to accomplish a purpose that God has for you. I can't accomplish that. Adam can't accomplish that, Russ can't accomplish that, James can't accomplish that, only you can. Each one of us has a reason for being on this planet. And if you're not sure what that is yet, rest assured that God has a purpose for you. An awesome purpose on this planet. But I want you to start thinking through what that purpose might be. Remember again that saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And I think that that's a good thing to be thinking through. What is the reason I'm alive? What would be missing if I weren't here on this planet? Whether it feels like it or not, if you, if any of you were not here on this planet, a lot would be missing. Because God has a reason for you to be here, whether you know that or not. Okay, now I want to kind of shift gears here. I want to start off with this idea of purpose. And I want you guys all to be confident that God has a unique purpose for you on this planet. And He's given you everything you need to accomplish it. Now, 
I want to kind of shift to this this issue of self-discipline, like that first verse that we read today. And Aaron's going to share a lot more about this in a minute. But I want to run through a few things really quickly about discipline. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so in there he says, Be diligent to present yourself a workman approved. Now, here's the deal that I think is really interesting. When he says that, how many of you have ever thought, I don't have to do anything. I just have to rely on God and kind of float along. And His will is going to happen in my life. That's a lie. Okay, I've heard Christians say that. I'm just going to, whoa, and then God opened this door, and then I did that, and then that. Well, He does open doors spontaneously sometimes. (laughs) But also, He calls us to be disciplined. That's why that verse says, Be diligent to present yourself a workman approved, who does not need to be ashamed. So we have an aspect of responsibility in accomplishing what God has for us. It's not just a random thing where we just float around and all of a sudden, voila, God's will just happened in my life. Sometimes he does awesome things that we're not ready for. But that goes back to having him on the throne on a regular basis. That doesn't happen spontaneously. So it says, be diligent to present yourself a workman approved to God. So we have an aspect of responsibility in all this. And I'm going to mention just a few areas of, the, of that responsibility. And the first one is in that very verse. It says, rightly dividing the word of truth. So one of the first areas that we're supposed to be self-disciplined in is in God's Word, in rightly dividing God's Word. In Psalms 119.105, it says the unfolding of God's Word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. When we unfold it, it doesn't say just reading God's Word gives light. It will, but it tells us to get in, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, and then to do what? To apply it, right? James one twenty two says, Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So as we read God's word, we're supposed to be studying it, memorizing it, applying it. That is what it means to be somebody that rightly divides the word of truth, who unfolds it and gets understanding. So we're challenged to be disciplined in reading God's word. That That is a discipline, right? And getting, we were talking about that in our discussion group last night. That is a big discipline to be good at dividing God's Word, at reading God's Word, at studying God's Word on a daily basis. So that's a discipline. Another one is just overall prayer. Colossians 4.2 tells us to be earnest in prayer. Jeremiah 30.21 says to be devoted to being close to God. That's a huge challenge. So we need to be self-disciplined in our walk with God on a daily basis. How important is it to have my daily quiet time and to have a solid quality quiet time, not just to check it off the list type of quiet, quiet time, right? It's important. It's something to be disciplined in. James 3.2 says to be disciplined in what we speak. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to be disciplined in what we think. Philippians 4 it kind of talks about thinking on pure things, lovely things, good things, right? Not thinking on junk. Colossians 3.23 sums it up in saying, in everything we do to do it for His glory. So we need to be disciplined in every single aspect of our lives to bring glory to God. And that doesn't just happen naturally. It goes back to being diligent, right? It takes diligence, and it takes preparation, and it takes a lot of patience. We're not going to get there tomorrow. None of us are. So over time, we can learn to be diligent in those areas. As you think about self-discipline, realize that if you're not good at it, or even if you are good at it, it's God's gift to you. That's a neat thing. It's not like, okay, you better be self-disciplined, otherwise everything is down the drain. God doesn't do that. Remember, he gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Self-discipline is needed for life and godliness. And we know 
from God's word that he gives us self-discipline. But we learn it over time. We progress in it. Galatians 5, and 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And self-discipline is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So as the Holy Spirit's working in my life, he produces self-discipline. So you can look forward to that, that he will be producing that in increasing measure in your life. Again, in 2 Timothy 1, 7, he says that he's given us a sound mind, also translated as self-discipline or controlled thinking. I'm not just randomly drawn all over by any impulse that comes into my head, but I have a sound mind. I can be disciplined in my thinking and in my actions. So self-discipline is vital, and it's something that God gives us. I want to run through a few things right here. They have to deal with motivation. Self-discipline is proportional to motivation. If you're not motivated, you're not going to be disciplined towards any purpose. You have to have a motivation first. Now, here's a big thing I hope you all take away and remember from this morning. That is, you alone are in charge of your motivation level. How many of you have ever thought, I just sit around and wallow, I get zapped with extra motivation today, and so I do a lot of cool stuff. I used to have that that mentality, and that's not true. That's a lie, actually. We're in charge of our motivation levels. And the way that that we stay motivated and not get unmotivated is we cultivate motivation builders in our life, and we avoid motivation barriers. Sounds simple, but it works. So here are some motivation builders. You can write these down if you have a pen, because I don't have them on the notes for you. I don't think Erin does. Erin's going to pass out notes when she gets done, but I don't think these are on there. Okay, motivation builders. Your identity, knowing who you are in Christ. You're somebody that God has created uniquely with gifts and strengths that nobody on this planet has, and with a purpose that he's called you alone to accomplish. That's a big thing. So you have an identity in Christ. You have a purpose. Setting smart goals is good for a specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic, and within a timeline. That's kind of an acronym for good goals. Not just saying, I want to share with somebody sometime in my life. Or saying, I want to share with 10 million people next week. Okay, neither of those are going to happen. But you could say, this semester I'd like to learn to share my faith with three people. That's smart. It's specific, it's measurable, it's action-oriented, it's realistic, and it's within a timeline. Eternal perspective, having the right perspective in this life, knowing that we're not here just for tomorrow. We're here for something way bigger. That will increase your motivation. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says faith produces work, that love produces labor, and that hope gives us perseverance in that process. Right? As I love God, I'm going to serve Him. As I love you guys, I'll serve you. As we love each other, we're going to serve each other. That'll motivate us to do what God's called us to. Having proper balance is vital. Not being unbalanced in any area, but being properly balanced in all areas is necessary. Fellowship and accountability with other Christians will motivate us correctly, right? As we see other people's examples and as we're challenged and encouraged by people around us. How many of you have felt motivated this weekend at this retreat? I mean, it's neat seeing so many other people that are walking close to God and, uh, and being motivated to. Okay, prayer will motivate you. As you talk to God, one thing that I, that I know motivates me a lot is it, it focuses me on, on what's important. As I'm praying, it gets me focused on, on God's agenda, not mine. Right? As I'm praying for somebody to come to Christ, as I'm praying for God's will to be done and not mine, it focuses me on His agenda and not mine. And that motivates me towards it. And God's Word is a motivator. As we get in God's Word on a daily basis, it will motivate us in big ways. Jesus himself will motivate us. John 15, 5 again, Jesus says, apart from me you can do nothing. Hebrews uh, 12, 1 and 2 says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. So as we stick our eyes on Jesus and don't take him off, that will motivate us to accomplish what God's called us to. And the Holy Spirit inside of us 
will motivate me and empower me to do all that God has called me to on this planet. So here are some motivation barriers. Sin, that same verse, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, says to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. It wraps us up and it, and it prevents us from accomplishing what God has for us. Expectations. How many of you have had an expectation of yourself that was probably maybe too high and then it really tore down your motivation because you're just like, I can't do that. How about incorrect desires? The five C's, cash, cars, careers, condos, cuties, and computers. <laughs> that can be an improper motivation, right? That will actually destroy our total motivation because we get our eyes on the wrong things. How about past failures? Any of you ever been distracted by a past failure and let that prevent you from accomplishing what God wanted you to accomplish? Keep your eyes on Jesus, not the past failures. Who cares if you failed? We all fail. You know, keep your eyes on Jesus. Fear will take away your motivation. Rationalization. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I can sit in bed for an extra hour. I can negotiate with my alarm clock. That'll prevent you from uh, accomplishing what God has for you. Burnout. Doing everything on the planet and then getting burnt out and not being able to accomplish your purpose. Unbelief. Right? Not believing that God can do what he said he would do. That will tear down my motivation. A lack of knowledge. Not knowing all that God has for me will take away from my motivation. Being led by feelings will destroy my motivation. I used to do this all the time. I used to think, man, oh gosh, I really feel like I should share my faith today. So I'll go share my faith today. Well, there's nothing wrong with that feeling. But what about the next day when I don't feel like sharing my faith or when I'm scared to death of sharing my faith? Does that mean I don't do it then? See, we're not motivated by feelings. right? We, we're, we can't be. If we let our feelings motivate us, we will not have the motivation necessary to accomplish what God has for us. Comfort zones, not stepping out of comfort zones. Being led by circumstances. I've heard so many people say, well, God just didn't open up that door. Maybe he wanted you to step out in faith and then he would open the door. Sometimes those doors don't appear very open. Waiting for a circumstance to work out before you obey God will destroy your motivation. And finally, our procrastination, putting off what you know you need to do today until tomorrow. The more you do that, doesn't it become like this big monster? After a while, you go, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about that thing. I just want to forget it even exists. <laughs> it just destroys and zaps your motivation. So those are some motivation barriers, and you heard some motivation builders. Cultivate motivation builders. You probably have some specifically for yourself that nobody else has. Things that will encourage you or motivate you. Well, cultivate those things in your life. And you know probably things that tear down your motivation. So avoid those things. And keep your eyes on Jesus through the whole process because he's the one that is going to make it possible. Okay? Now with that, I'm going to hand it off to Erin. And I will just say that she is an amazing woman. And I'm very lucky to be married to her. I'm looking forward to hear what she has to say. Okay. I am actually really excited to give this talk because... This is something that I've struggled with a lot in my life, and I bet a lot of people in this room probably struggle with this too. But today we're going to talk about what a balanced life looks like, the two extremes of being unbalanced, and how to be balanced in life. Because I know everybody in here, if you were asked, do you really like having an unbalanced life? Probably no one in here would raise their hand. Because everybody in here wants to live a balanced life. They want to have goals. They want to have a purpose. They want to have something to live for. They want to be considered disciplined because then you get things done. You can get straight A's in school and la, 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 la. 
But today, as we all know, the reason why we're giving, I'm giving this talk is because that is not the reality of things. Most people are very unbalanced. So how, what does a well-balanced individual look like? And in order to understand what a well-balanced individual looks like, you have to understand one thing, and that's called boundaries. And what is a boundary? Boundaries basically is like a fence or a border or a line that designates what belongs to me and what belongs to someone else and where my responsibility ends. And we see all the time when a boundary is crossed, what the consequences are. You have wars because boundaries are crossed. Another country crosses over on to another country's boundary and a fight ensues. You have big trespassing fines. You see these huge signs that say no trespassing or violators will be prosecuted. You know, when you step across, you're prosecuted. Boundaries are also there for our protection. A lot of times we don't think about it. But laws are a type of boundary. Um, God's laws are also another type of boundary. A lot of times we don't like boundaries because we think that they're, they keep us from what we really want. A good example I heard of the importance of boundaries is there's this cow, a fence, and a six-lane highway. Now, that for the cow, the grass is always greener on the other side. You always think that it's better to cross your boundaries. But the reality of it is, is that boundaries there to protect the cow from getting squashed on the six-lane highway. So boundaries are very important. In our personal lives, what a boundary is, is it gives us a clear sense of our identity and purpose. We need to know our responsibility sphere. And what that is, is our body is our responsibility. Our feelings are our responsibility. Our desires and attitudes, our behaviors, our choices are all our responsibility. No one else can be responsible for those, that part of you. You are responsible for only you. Um, you can't blame anybody else for things that you need to be responsible for that you lacked responsibility in. The problem comes when we let others cross over our boundaries, when we blame others for our lack of responsibility, and when we cross over boundaries, when we take responsibility for things that don't belong to us. So basically, when you <clears throat> do not have a good clear sense of your boundaries, you are basically refusing to grow up. And this is a big issue in undisciplined. This is a big boundary issue when you are undisciplined. Is that you are crossing over boundaries or you are allowing others to cross over your boundaries. There are two extremes in discipline. And a lot of people, when they think of being undisciplined, they think of only one thing. And that is being lazy. Well, lazy is definitely an example of being undisciplined, but that is not all that being undisciplined is about. The other extreme of being undisciplined is being a workaholic. And you're like, no, those are the most disciplined people in the world. Well, no, they're not. And the reason is, it says in Matthew 5.37, says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. The lazy person either says yes but means no or never says yes at all. Basically what their problem is, that they have a big lack of perseverance. They don't like to be challenged. It's too hard, so they're not gonna do it. The workaholic always says yes and never no, and they kill their perseverance by burning out. Nate and I are both the examples of extremes, but we're both getting better. Nate is a workaholic, and I am the lazy one. I can never, ever be considered a workaholic, ever. But uh, <laughs> we're both getting better at it. One example of our two extremes is the alarm clock. And I'm the type of person that when the alarm goes off, I like to press snooze 50 times. And in reality, I want to get up two hours earlier than I really do. Nate, on the other hand, <laughs> really funny story about Nate. 
Nate came up with this idea that you're never allowed to negotiate with alarm clock. The moment it goes off, you turn it off and you get right out of bed. One time, Nate, using this idea, he heard an alarm go off, he jumps out of bed, and he does his morning routine. And that usually consists of start his coffee, take a shower, drink his coffee, eat breakfast, and then have his quiet time. Well, while he was doing that, he's like, I'm so tired. I do not understand why I'm so tired. He just couldn't focus. He couldn't have his quiet time. He'd drink in his coffee, and he just couldn't get it. And he looks at the clock and finds out it was 2 in the morning. <laughs> a phone had gone off at 2 in the morning, and he thought it was his alarm clock. And so he gets out of bed. He takes a shower. He drinks his coffee, and he gets ready to have a quiet time. And by that time, he was so awake that he couldn't get back to sleep. <laughs> so... But anyway, those are the two extremes, but it's really cool. God is working in both of our lives, and Nate is learning to become more balanced, and I'm also learning to become more balanced. So going back, the lazy person says yes, but means no, or never says yes at all. And the workaholic says yes always and never no. Let's look at what each of the two extremes really look like. The lazy person, and here's a good example in the Bible of a lazy person, it's in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 30. And it's Jesus speaking, and he says, What do you think? There was a man that had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Okay, now the first son had good boundaries. He said no, but then he changed his mind and decided to do it. Second son on the other hand, had very bad boundaries. He said yes, but never went. What we call that is procrastination. So lazy people tend to be procrastinators. And why is that? Well, lazy people have no clear idea of boundaries. When they procrastinate, you have no clear idea of boundaries. There's this book that we have been reading. It's called Changes at Heal. And Dr. Henry Cloud says, he's the author of the book, he says, that procrastinators, they say yes when they mean no. Then they express their no through not following through. It is a distorted sense of control. So this is a way they control. is by saying yes, but meaning no, and never following through. Procrastinators, usually when they say yes, it's because they're responding through guilt. They feel guilty. They're basically letting that other person cross their boundaries, and they say yes. But in reality, that's not the truth. We don't really like to think of ourselves this way, but this is the truth. It's that lazy people live only for pleasure. They live only for themselves. So it is not that lazy people do not do anything. It's just that they only do what they want to do. And that's the reality. Like, I think back on my life, and it's not that I was never do anything. It's just that I only did what I wanted to do. Never challenged myself. Never persevered through anything. I just wanted to do what pleased me. And a good example of that is in Proverbs 21, 17. So let's turn there. It says, he who loves pleasure will become poor. And a lazy person loves pleasure. And that's a good example of that's all you really live for is pleasure. Lazy people sleep instead of work. <laughs> now, I like to sleep. And a lot of people, they love to sleep instead of work. It's so much easier to sleep instead of getting up and doing what you know to do because it's so comfortable and once again you live for pleasure so why get up because that's not in your best interest you know you want to do what you want to do this is a good one 
Lazy people are an annoyance. And that's in Proverbs 10, 26. And why are lazy people an annoyance? As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send them. And a sluggard is a lazy person. So they, this is saying, the Bible says that as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. So it's basically saying a lazy person is like this. And you're like, well, why is that? You only really affect yourself. Well, the truth is, being lazy, you affect everyone around you. And the reason is, is lazy people tend to be moochers. We like to mooch off of others. We like to eat their food. We don't want to go shopping because it's too much energy. We eat our roommate's food. Well, one other thing, one other reason why lazy people tend to be annoying is that because they like to be served. They don't like really serving very well. And how many of you have a roommate where, and if your roommate's here, don't raise your hand, of course, <laughs> where you know that, oh my gosh, you have to do everything for this roommate. You have to wash their dishes, they make a mess in the living room, and you're the one that usually ends up picking it up. Okay, how many of you are actually that roommate? <laughs> okay, that's why lazy people tend to be annoying. Because <laughs> they like to be served, and they like to mooch. A lazy person dreams, but doesn't set goals. So you have lots of plans, lots of big, lofty ideas, but nothing ever happens because, once again, it takes too much energy. It's too much of a challenge. I don't want to do it. And Proverbs, or it talks about that in Proverbs 28:19. In my life, a good example of uh, my dreams, but no goals, it was getting to college. <laughs> I had all these big plans. I wanted to go to a big Christian college and go into ministry. And But my problem was, was I never even researched a college. I never applied to any colleges. I didn't really expect anything to happen because I wasn't doing anything, but at the same time, I kind of wanted it to all fall in my lap. And when it didn't, I was like, ah, too much energy. So finally, my dad had to tell me, Aaron, you're going to Fort Lewis, and then you can transfer out in two years because I wasn't going anywhere without my dad telling me what to do. <laughs> Not a very good thing. A lazy person wastes resources. And what that means is you put things off until they're ruined a lot of times. Have you ever made something to eat? And then because they're too lazy, you didn't put it away and then it got moldy and nasty. <laughs> or you left it in your refrigerator too long <laughs> and it got moldy and nasty. It was so moldy and nasty that you had to throw the entire container away because you would be afraid to eat out it after that because you know your food would be poisoned and that you would die. <laughs> Well, you waste resources when you're lazy because you put things off and you don't take care of things. We talked about that in Proverbs 12:27. A lazy person also has unfulfilled desires. And let's look at that in Proverbs 21:25. The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. And the reason why lazy people have unfulfilled desires is that they refuse to work for their desires. They refuse to work for the things they really want in life. And because of that, you will never... Get those desires. Here's a big one. Won't feed themselves. Okay, now you're like, okay, my stomach is hungry. Of course I'm going to feed myself. But the reality of it is, is once again, making something to eat might take too much energy. So I'll just go hungry and say, and this is true. It's happened in my life. I've done it a few times. Or, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to eat. It doesn't happen anymore, just so you know. <laughs> I, I made sure to remind her. <laughs> but you just having fun doing what you're doing, which is usually nothing. And you don't want to get up and take the required energy to cook a meal and feed yourself. And so you just go with that because it's so much easier. <laughs>
Lazy people don't get things done on time. And in Proverbs 24, Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, A sluggard does not plow in season. So at harvest time, he looks but finds nothing. So I know probably everyone in here has procrastinated their homework and hasn't gotten it done at time. I was really good at that. I was really good at procrastinating, but luckily because I'm cute, my teachers would have pity on me and let me turn things in. <laughs> okay. That wasn't really good, but <laughs> I would get away with a lot of stuff. So it wasn't I wasn't really reaping what I was sowing, so that was a bad thing. I was learning bad behavior with that one. Once again, lazy people love to sleep. Lazy people are impulsive, and the reason why they're impulsive is because they put things off, so they have to rush through it and make quick decisions. So lazy people become poor because, once again, they have no dreams, they set no goals, and they don't do anything that is a challenge to them. Lazy people make excuses for not taking responsibility, and this is the funniest verse I've ever heard. It's in Proverbs twenty-two, thirteen. It says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside, or I will be murdered in the streets. I don't think I've ever come up with that one as an excuse for not turning things in or getting things done on time, but I've probably made some pretty lame excuses in my lifetime. I mean, it does get pretty ridiculous. I'm sure your teachers, when you turn late things in on time, are like, yeah, I know really why you're doing this, because you were procrastinating, but they, for some reason, let you get your excuse out. Lazy people cannot usually make decisions. <laughs> and so this is another big boundary issue is that you can't make decisions and so people usually make them for you and you keep allowing that and you don't really take responsibility for yourself and so you don't bear the consequences and so you never learn how to make decisions you never learn how to take responsibility lazy people tend to gossip because you have nothing else to do so you're like I'll just talk about so and so because it's, it ta- it's nice and it makes me happy. <laughs> this is a big one. Lazy people tend to be disorganized and messy. Because how many of your rooms are really messy right now? <laughs> no, people are lying. You know that there's a lot of messy people in this house. <laughs> okay, it's really bad when you get so messy you can't see your floor. That is really bad. Never <laughs> And here is a really sad one, is lazy people have no purpose. It says in Ecclesiastes 4, 5, the fool folds his hand and ruins himself. So because you don't do anything, you're going to ruin yourself. You have no purpose. You have dreams, but you don't set any goals. So you're going to live life out without fulfilling the purpose that God has given you. This is a big one. Lazy people are extrinsically motivated by fear. And the example of this in my life was when I was younger. My dad, he was a disciplinarian in the house, and I have a really good relationship with my dad. It's really cool. But he would tell me to clean my room because, once again, I was lazy. My room was really disorganized, really messy all the time. So he'd tell me to clean my room. And usually what would happen was they'd tell me enough that my mom would just end up doing it for me. When She wouldn't do that, and I'd put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, my dad would kind of lower his head a little bit, sigh, and squint his eyes, and I knew I was going to be in trouble if I did not get my room done right away. And so I was motivated by fear. I was motivated by fear that my dad was going to spank me or something if I didn't get my room cleaned. And lazy people tend to be motivated by fear. Better study, otherwise I'm going to get an F. 
So it's all about fear. That's the reason why you finally tend to do stuff that you don't want to do, that doesn't challenge you. But now, enough talking about the lazy person, because I know everybody here is probably feeling a little bit convicted. Let's talk about the workaholic. I think the majority of us tend to be more lazy than others. We're college students, right? But there are some of us that are probably the other extreme, that are workaholics. And the workaholic is not that he doesn't have a purpose, it's that he has a misdirected purpose. Workaholics usually work for their own gain and not for God's glory. Workaholics usually trust in themselves alone. Psalms 127, 1 and 2 says in Psalms 127, 1 and 2, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. So the workaholic rises early, works late, just struggles and struggles and struggles, but doesn't really put God first in his life because it's all about him. It's all about, I'm going to take care of me. I'm going to take care of everything else. I'm strong enough to do it. And so he does it in vain. They are too worried about material things. They don't seek God's kingdom first, usually. They're too concerned about the five C's, cash, cars, careers, condos, and cuties. That's what they generally work for. That's their purpose. That's their misdirected purpose. Their identity, this is really sad, their identity is usually wrapped up in what they do, not in what God has made made them to be. And this goes for a lot of Christians, is that, you feel that you have to work hard because it gains your respect. That is how you gain your identity. So workaholics, that's usually what their identity is in, is in what they do. And this is interesting. It says in Ecclesiastes 4.4, talks about the workaholic. It says, And I saw that all labor and sh- all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. And in, in, in our current time, we have a good adage for it. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. And so the workaholic strives to keep up with the Joneses. It's really interesting that even the Bible talks about that. The workaholic doesn't have eternal perspective because all they're living for is now. All they're working for is what they can gain now. In Luke 12, 15 through 21, then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. So basically, this man did not have an eternal perspective. He lived for now. He lived for the esteem he could get now, the wealth he could get now. But he did not understand about eternity. He did not understand that his life affects eternity. Another good example is that the workaholic does good things, but not necessarily the best things. And the best example we find of that is in Luke 10, 38-42. And it's the story of Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. 
Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you were worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, no one can say that what Martha was doing was bad. She was actually serving Jesus, right? She was preparing a meal. She was using her gifts and abilities. Martha was really good at hospitality. I mean, she opened up her home. She's feeding Jesus, feeding the disciples. She's really good at what she does. But the thing is is that she's missing the point. A lot of times workaholics, they miss the whole point of where their focus really needs to be. And a lot of times they lose their focus and their perspective on who Jesus is in their lives. Um, Workaholics, and this is a big one, don't delegate. Because once again, they only trust in themselves. A good example of that is Moses, and it's in Exodus 18, 13 through 18. Okay. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that was Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people came to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Now, Moses was very talented. He understood God's laws. He knew how to get the job done. He was the best at what he did. And no one else, there was no one else to do the job. So Moses took it upon himself to do everything. The thing was, is that he was wearing himself out. He was perseverant, but he was going to burn himself out. And finally, when Moses did delegate, when he did teach the people how to do his job, it was much easier on him. That is a big thing with workaholics, is they don't delegate because they don't trust others to do the job for them. And they lose sight of who God is. They lose their focus. They're too busy to focus on God. They are only focusing on the now, on working, on doing the best job they know how. And workaholics are extrinsically motivated by reward. They're motivated by wealth, they're motivated by esteem, they're motivated by feeling good about themselves, about getting a good job done. They're not motivated by the right things. But how do we set boundaries? How do we overcome laziness, overcome this idea of being a workaholic? And here it is. And this is not the most astounding thing you're going to hear, but it's so true. And I've seen it in my life. I've seen that this is truth in my life. The number one thing you can do by setting good boundaries, by overcoming this idea of being a workaholic or being lazy, is this. It's living by the Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, it says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And there it is. Because both extremes live to please themselves. The lazy one lives only for pleasure. The other one lives only for themselves. So basically, living by the Spirit is putting God first in your life. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So self-control is a promise. It is a promise when you live by God's, putting God first. It says that you will learn self-control. So it is a result of living by the Spirit. Another way of setting good boundaries is giving glory to God in all you do. In Colossians 3.23, it says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. For both extremes, God is who you work for. So we are called to be Christ-like. Lazy people, you are called to persevere. It says in Hebrews 12 
one, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So you're supposed to let go of the laziness and you're supposed to persevere. That means you're supposed to challenge yourself and step out and challenge yourself. It's hard because it's a challenge <laughs> to do things that don't give you pleasure. Also, lazy people, you're called to be in, intrinsically motivated. And here's a good example of something that's intrinsically motivated. It's in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. It says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So the ant, it's not extrinsically motivated. It does what it does because it's intrinsically motivated. Nothing tells it what to do. It just knows what it does because it's working for the best interests of the people, the little ants around them. And I actually have an ant story. In the summertime, when I would go spend summers with my cousin in Bakersfield, California. Interesting place to spend summer, but they had red ants there. And we'd like to run around barefoot, and it's not barefoot and red ants don't mix very well. So what we decided to do one day is remove the red ants from the yard. So we got the water hose, and we got the shovel, and we spent hours drowning the ants and digging up their little houses. Well, the next day we'd come out, and the ants would have rebuilt. In one night, they'd rebuilt their entire... And we really destroyed these ants. I mean, we really dug them up pretty good. And they'd have rebuilt the next day. And so we did it again, and we did it again, and we did it again. And finally, the ants got smart, and they moved to the other side of the yard, so we were... We were okay with that. It was hard. The ants could have given up and like, we're just going to drown. <laughs> That's it. It's too hard. But the ants, no, they just, they knew what they needed to do and they got it done. You know, they were intrinsically motivated. And so that's where we're called to be. And our intrinsic motivation is because Christ's love compels us. It's all about Jesus Christ. That is your motivation. It's not, it's not because of you. It's because of him that you have anything at all. So let's go back to workaholics. They're commanded to rest. And Genesis 2, 2 through 3, it's a good example of someone who is a well-balanced individual. It says, By the seventh day God finished the work he had been doing. So he re- on the seventh day he rested from all his work. So God is a well-balanced individual. He knows how to balance his life very well. In Exodus 23, 12, here's the command. It says, Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household, and the alien as well may be refreshed. Now the thing is, the Sabbath day was one made for our rest, because, and here's the thing, is because if we worked seven days out of the week, we would forget God. We would be too busy, and we'd forget God. So God made the Sabbath day, so that way you would remember Him, that you'd have time, that you could refocus. So that is the whole purpose of why you're not supposed to be a workaholic, so that you don't forget God, that you can keep focused on God. In Mark 6, 30-31, and we won't read it, it's a story about the disciples after Jesus had sent them out. They came back and they were all excited about these things that they had done. And they were in this house and a lot of people needed to be ministered to and they couldn't eat because there was too many people. And so Jesus told them, let's come away and let's rest. And so we, we are called to be Christ-like. And even Jesus said, told the disciples to rest. Even Jesus rested himself. When we are essentially not resting, when we're essentially being a workaholic, basically what you're saying is that you have more, more perseverance than Jesus himself. And that is obviously not true. <laughs> Jesus knew what being balanced was. Remember Exodus 31-15 through 15 also says, talks about rest keeping our 
focus on God. The workaholic is also called to be intrinsically motivated because they're supposed to be giving glory to God in all they do, no longer working for themselves, no longer working for the esteem of men, but doing it because God, and that's the whole thing. And here is the big one, and this is one that is a little convicting. You are called to become an adult. (laughs) You are not children any longer. You are actually adults now. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. It says in 2 Peter 1, 5-6, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control. So self-control is the earmark of maturity, and it's important to be effective. If you want to be effective in life, you have to have self-control. You have to be able to say yes to things that you need to say yes to and no to things that you need to say no to. So, and here's what I found really is effective in my life, to being able to say no to myself, get up out of bed when I'm supposed to get out of bed and do the things I'm supposed to do is choice. Like it or not, no one else can make the choice for you. You have a choice to either stop being a workaholic or stop being lazy. You are in control of that. Once again, in Matthew 5.37, it says that your yes needs to be yes, and your no needs to be no. So basically, you need to be a person of your word if you're lazy. If you say yes, you need to follow through. This was always drilled into me as a child. My dad would always say, if you give your word to something, always carry it through, no matter how hard it is. So you need to persevere in what you've decided to do. Basically, there are no magic buttons. You will not continue in your laziness or your workaholicness, and then bing, you press the button, and you're perfectly, completely healed of all these issues. It's not going to happen. It starts with all these things that we talked about, but also it starts with, I choose every day not to be lazy, or I choose every day not to be a workaholic. So there are no magic buttons. You have a choice. Like it says, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul says he put childish ways behind him. So Paul actually put those things behind him. He made the decision to not be a child anymore. It also says, make every effort to add self-control. You are to make every effort. You are to persevere through it. For the workaholic, it is to say yes to only what is your responsibility and to say no to things that aren't best, only good. For the lazy person, it is to say no to always having pleasure and yes to challenge and persevering. One thing to always remember, though, is being intrinsically motivated. You cannot be extrinsically motivated by guilt. You will not ever do something because you're motivated out of guilt. And you all know that. Because at one point in your life, you've all been guilty about being a workaholic or being lazy. And look where it's got you. It's got you nowhere. So you cannot be motivated out of guilt. And a good verse for that is in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It talks about godly sorrow, brings repentance, that leads to salvation, and leaves no regret. So true repentance is not going to bring guilt. On the other hand, worldly sorrow, which would be guilt, brings only death. So basically, being guilty is not going to get you anywhere. And that is all I have. And Nate is going to come up and close it out. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Karen. And I think kind of the key for the whole day is just it all starts with Christ. Intrinsic motivation, like Aaron talked about, having proper motivation, being motivated out of love for God and by His love, uh, it all starts with our relationship with God. So... Make that the focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus, like it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and that will motivate you, and that will provide the self-discipline that's needed in your life, I think, in all of our lives. It all comes back to Him. It all goes back to Him. 
So keep your eyes on Jesus. In Jeremiah 30, 21, devote yourself to being close to Him. That is, I think, the foundation for uh, the abundant life, a meaningful life, and everything else that we talked about today. So uh, that is all we have to say.